Well, what a week it was. What a briar. I absolutely loved it from start to finish. And who better to talk about the briar than the champions? Your 2021 briar champs, Brendan Botcher and Darren Molding are going to be on the show. Kevin, what do you think of the briar? Well, it was high drama. You had <laughs> situations where it could have been a ton of tiebreakers, and then there wasn't, and then big misses, big games, big makes. It was uh, it was really, really a good week. Warren, you've been to a lot of Briars. You've seen a lot. What do you think? I think the last three days were phenomenal. There were some fantastic games, fantastic shot making. But again, what happened for the first seven days, I think we pretty much could have predicted it before it started, and uh, that still is an issue from my point of view. Let's go with another show that rhymes last rock eighth end up by two i don't think i'm i don't think i'm white i don't think you are either oh, oh. it's clean oh, don't, oh. Kill it, don't kill it don't kill it the line's really good right on the button guys right here, last guys. stone for kevin martin they want it on the button the sweepers are watching it fans are on their feet <laughs> Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Briar, Briar, Briar. Uh, Kevin, you've played in a bunch, you've watched a bunch, you've been around it your whole life. Give me your take on the week. Well, the week started, I think, uh, about how I would have expected. There's uh, you know, quite a few lopsided games early, and then it got very exciting midweek trying to figure out, you know, could New Brunswick do it? That was a big deal. Could Quebec do it? And uh, to get into that final eight, and in the end, you know, a pretty expected eight of the top nine uh, Teams on the rankings ended up getting in. But I'll tell you what, it was a really, really good week for people paying attention to our sport. Uh, Sean and I went walking uh, between the semifinal and final. Uh, of course, we were a little stressed out ourselves. But um, so we went out for a little walk and we got stopped a ton by people in their cars and coming out of their house to talk to us. They'd all watch the semifinal. They're all excited about the final. So I tell you what, it was a very successful week. Um, lots of drama, but a lot of people paying attention to our wonderful sport. And I think that matters a lot going forward. Personally, Kevin, uh, I was thinking of you the whole time watching. We texted back and forth a little bit. If if you're a curling fan but been living under a rock, of course, your son, Karik, is a national champion and I said, how, how are you possibly watching this thing uh, under the, the nervousness <laughs> of parents? I couldn't do it. I couldn't watch my kids, Kevin, running high school track, and they weren't very good. Uh, <laughs> but this is a whole new ballgame for you, Kevin. It is. And uh, so Sean and I, yeah, we were watching. But, of course, uh, yeah, there's no fingernails left. And, and I tended to do a lot of pacing uh, across the house and had to go outside and do something, come back in. And, you know, the, the garage is nice and clean. And, no, <laughs> it's really, really hard as a parent. But, you know, we've been through it. And, uh, you know, those kids, they, they work really hard as a team. And uh, usually hard work doesn't go without your rewards. And they got rewarded with a huge, a huge uh, uh, win on the weekend. Warren, you've been around it your whole life. You've seen great Ryers uh, over all the years. Uh, how do you rate this one? Well, I think certainly, again, the last three days were outstanding, just some phenomenal play. But again, we go back to the format, which is still a great topic of a controversy. And for the first time ever, there were 18 teams playing in this Briar, which is uh, the first time the number has been that big. And a lot of comments by people, certainly on our Facebook page, about what they thought of that format and uh, the issue of the 14 provincial territorial representatives versus the top teams. This kind of gave us the combination of both, which maybe is going to be the answer going forward. It has been suggested by us, and others somewhat agree, that maybe even taking that up to 20 teams would, in fact, uh, allow all the top teams in the Canadian team ranking system to be in the event. But then again, you look at the predictability. Uh, we had nine of the top teams in the Canadian team ranking system in the event, and of course, eight of those teams were the ones that qualified. So maybe the combination of both going forward is the way this can be best be resolved for now. Certainly, be my thought was next year I'd look at at least eighteen teams and uh, possibly twenty. I would not go back to the sixteen-team format from where I stand. 
Kevin, a bunch of feel-good stuff, like I had mentioned uh, in this thing. Grattan was a, a story. Uh, Wayne Madaw just grabbed this briar and ran with it. Uh, <laughs> if if you haven't heard about Wayne Madaw, he, you know, he had to get out of curling. He had a terrible accident, got a rod in his leg. Uh, he was, uh, you know, called to replace Glenn Howard. Uh, it was just fantastic. Uh, but there were some other things, Kevin, there. Uh, everyone kept talking about the lively rocks, Kevin. What about that? Yeah, you know what? And uh, I want to go back to Wayne Madaw here just for a second because uh, right after he uh, he lost out, the last loss, I texted him within just a few minutes later and said, Wayne, like, uh, you just did awesome. Like, that was absolutely fantastic. But how's the leg? <laughs> I said, like, with my steel hip, there's no way. Like, that many games. And he said, you know, I didn't want to say anything all week, but it hurts like crazy. <laughs> so he, he said, Advil's my friend. So, you, you know, he did his best and uh, what a fantastic job. But let's get into the rocks a little bit. So the lively rocks, isn't that a funny thing to say? So the ice in the arenas, when you've got 14 and a half, 15 second arena ice, the rocks really do react aggressively like they really bounce mm -hmm. but let's get into the rocks themselves so there's two basic types of of curling stones you'd see in the the main body of the rock there's treffer stones out of wales and there's elsa craig off the isle of elsa craig the body of the rock being common elsa so if we get into trevors a little bit they're high in porosity that means there's lots of air in them but they're also high in permeability, which is how the air travels through the rocks. And the reason they work very well as a striking band, because there's, they're able to compress, they're able to squish like a golf ball on impact. Therefore, the striking bands remain nice and shaped properly and not chipped because on impact, they'll squish. So it kind of makes sense, right? It's common sense. Mm -hmm. And those aren't lively rocks. And that's actually what was at the briar, was Trevor. So it's really kind of funny for me that they're saying the lively rocks. Well, actually, it, they're not, actually, uh, compared to other rocks, which I'll get into in a second. So, But they're very good rocks. That's what most clubs would want, is a, a Trevor, be it red or blue. They call them grays there, but, but it's actually a blue Trevor. And when they hit, because of the arena ice, they're very lively. And I guess you can call them lively rocks, but it's not really the rock. And of course, they're an insert stone. Uh, a blue hone insert, blue hone Elsa Craig off the Isle of Elsa Craig is the running edge. And that's very low porosity and very low permeability. That's why the running edges stay so good and they can slide along. And that also adds to the lively perception of the curling rock. Now there's also common Elsa Craig rocks. They're used a lot, not so much in curling clubs because they tend to chip, but uh, the striking bands tend to chip, but they're used a lot in, in championship play. And I would imagine when the World Curling Federation brings in rocks for the World Championships in a couple of weeks, we're going to see them be common Elsa. So everybody listening to this will have, uh, have a quick look at that. Now, those rocks are high in porosity as well, but they're low in permeability. And there's, that's important. High in porosity means there's lots of air in the stone, but the air pockets aren't joined together. They're not permeable. So they don't squish so when you look at a common Elsa Craig rock or a blue hone Elsa Craig rock, you're going to see half moon shaped chips come out of them because they don't squish on impact. So for curling clubs, the rocks just don't last very long, but they're livelier. They're more lively because they don't squish. It's kind of like steelies. If anybody used to play marbles, when you ever hit the steelies together, they'd bounce like crazy. <laughs> right. Well, a common Elsa, am I aging myself, you guys? Yeah. But common marbles, Elsa are yeah. like that because they don't squish. They're very lively. So I guess if you want to call curling stones lively, it would be the common Elsa that were not played with in this briar, but they probably will be played later in this, uh, in this bubble. I don't know that. But it'll be interesting to find out, and I'm excited to see what uh, the World Curling Federation brings in for stones. And I hope I wasn't too technical for everybody with the uh, explanation of, of curling stones a little bit. So you wouldn't have changed them, Kevin? You wouldn't have changed anything about the stones? No, they're terrific stones. Great rocks uh, that, that they had in there. Um, no problem with, the, with what they're made of. It's just two different options. And as far as we're bringing up lively rocks, well, actually, of the two choices, the ones at the Briar would be the least lively of the two options what's the whole stopwatch thing kevin in watching a draw you know we hear them say that's 14 seconds that's 12 medium weight throw normal throw hack uh so i hear a guy saying that stone was 14 seconds how does that help the other guy i know it does but i don't know how 
Yeah, isn't that neat? So um, for curlers that curl all the time, of course, stopwatches have been used for a very long time. But the speed of the ice matters as to how hard you have to throw the rock to get it to where you want it to stop at the other end. So 14 and a half seconds is about what this ice was this, this week. And that's from the time you release it at the hog line, mm-hmm. you time from hog to hog. So you click your stopwatch when you release a rock. When it hits the second hog line, click it again. That'll be about 14 and a half if the rock stops on the button. If this rock is back line weight, you're going to throw the rock harder, of course, to make it go further. So it's going to be about 14 seconds or 13.8. It's actually about seven feet per second. We're getting technical again here. But so back line is about seven feet at six feet more, but about seven feet more. So about second more. So I'd be about 13 and a half seconds. And hack weight is a little bit more than that, 12 and a half seconds because you're throwing it harder. It's taking less time to get to the other end. So if you throw a guard, say it's a seven feet out front, that's about 13 feet, almost two seconds. So you're going to throw that 16 and a half seconds from hog to hog. I'll tell you what, after I haven't played much curling in the last seven years since I retired, but if you tell me, Jimmy, Kevin, this ice is 13 and a half seconds. Even now I could walk out on the ice and I'd be very close to the button if you just gave me the time I need and where to put the broom, how much curl there is. You know what, Kev? This sounds like in golf, a stimp meter, and they say, okay, it's 13 on the stimp. Is that the same idea? So a guy knows it's fast ice or slow ice. A golfer could know how to hit a putt if it's really, you know, high on the stimp or or low. Yeah, exactly. If you take a top golfer out onto the golf course and put a blindfold on him and line him up right and say, listen, you've got a 12-foot level putt, stimp says 13. That golfer is going to be very close to making that putt with the right weight because that speed makes sense in his brain and the feel of his fingers. He'll know how hard to hit that putt for a 12 foot putt on a 13 stem. No different than if you got four feet of curl, 13 and a half seconds, a curler would be very close. Got it. Uh, Warren, the, the, the games were great, uh, high drama, some stories at the beginning, but also. A couple of blowouts there, Warren, 14, 15, 16 scored, but also a, a couple of really low games, one nothing, 3 nothing. What do you say about all that, Warren? Well, we had one game, the final score was 3 uh, nothing, and in our final game on Sunday, after six ends, the score was one nothing. And of course, if you go back to the 80s, go back that far, we heard in the arenas repeatedly, boring, 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 because I think we had a final score in the 89 Briar that was 2-1. And of course, back in those days, uh, there wasn't much curl in the rocks and very good teams at that time, Pat Ryan, uh, those guys could peel rocks for nine ends in a row. And basically they got up one with a hammer and and that's what they did. And so everybody got the point of something's got to be done, something's got to be done because offense is what entertains, defense is boring. And so we brought in initially the three-rock rule that was aimed at doing that. And that wasn't quite doing it. We got the four-rock rule. And now we have the five-rock rule. And now we still have three-nothing and one-nothing after six ends. And again, I'm hearing certainly on our Facebook page, boring, boring. And I guess there's a, a little bit of analysis as to what to do with this. Kevin and I have talked about this in the show before about the tick shot. And the tick shot has been perfected to the degree that you put a guard out front, which was the whole intent of the free guard zone, And you can't remove it. However, you can tick it over. And these players have become so good at that tick shot that they can do this repeatedly. And so that has become a huge issue as far as these scores are concerned. The other shot that I think has really become a major issue in this is the run-through. And I look at this, Briar, as the difference between those eight or nine really good teams and the rest is the ability to play these run-throughs. These top guys with the run-throughs, I don't know what their accuracy is, but I'll say 90-plus percent. The guys that aren't there, they may be 50%. And so regardless of what happens, they play a bunch of rocks into the house. All of a sudden, uh, maybe the third's first shot, he comes down. He's able to clear out three or four shots because he's able to play that run through with such accuracy. They can hit the thing within a couple of inches, the top players. And so that has become another, another issue in the whole thing. And so you kind of look at it all and say, so what's the answer? Well, there is one other factor that Kevin and I have talked about this, and I've watched this forever. And again, it's the hog line. And if we want to go back to this game was originally developed from throwing a stone from the hack to a target 146 feet away. And now we're sliding out like a bullet, taking 30 feet off of that. And so the accuracy and ability becomes better and better and better. 
I compare it to having a golf course with a 550-yard par 5, and all of a sudden, if the golfers can drive the ball 400 yards, it's no longer a par 5. So to a very large degree, this is also the issue. It is the deliveries and their ability. They're coming out, they're taking 30 feet off, and they're getting to the point they can't miss. And then we didn't have any hog line uh, patrol in this last event, and I won't suggest that there was a lot of fouls, but I'll put it this way. It sure looks like it. And I, I guess that's part of the problem. And Kevin and I have even talked about back in 1974 when this hog line rule was changed, you had to come to a full stop after releasing the stone before you could cross the line. Very difficult to go back there, but maybe part of the solution is moving that hog line back a couple of feet even might change things. I guess the other issue that we could say maybe could fix it is the tick zone. Well, let's uh, maybe put uh, a line six inches each side of center line and run it out maybe six, seven feet in front of the house and say if you put a rock in that area, you can't probably remove it till maybe the third final stone or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I think this is going to get worse and worse because these guys aren't going to get worse at what they're doing. They're going to get better. And as they get better, we better be prepared. If something isn't adjusted, we're going to have more 3 nothing games and one nothing after six ends uh, because of the factors I've mentioned. But Warren, I don't understand your take of, you know, you got highly skilled players. Some rules have changed over the years that, the, you know, they had to fix up the game to make it a little fairer, to not make it so boring. Uh, you know, there's 80 plus games that are played in this thing. Uh, so a couple were low scoring. I'm getting the sense, Warren, if the teams get too good, that you want to keep changing the rules, you know, or that you need to adjust this thing. At, at what point would you be happy with it, Warren? Let me go to a game that's going to be played here next week, which I designed. And the whole thing of design of mixed doubles was to produce a game that is more entertaining, more engaging, and a possibility to score points is always there. And that's what that game does. With the stationary rock out front that can't be touched till th after three rocks are thrown, the one behind the button that sits there, immediately you're forced to play to the inside. And the way you're going to score points in curling is playing to the middle, not to the outside. Playing to the outside might, in fact, uh, give you... Uh, Someone disagrees, Warren. They're phoning you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the hotline. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Warren, go ahead. So again, mixed doubles with the stationary rock out front, five rocks are thrown, you immediately are forcing the play to the inside. And that's the way multiple scores are going to take place in curling is playing towards the inside. Playing to the outside, not so much. I mean, the World Curling Federation introduced the power play into mixed doubles where you, you can actually set up the stationary rock rocks to the outside. But in my opinion, and it seems to be going that way, while a power play, you can probably score two, but it ensures that you probably won't score more than two in all probability. So many of the teams now use that as a defensive maneuver rather than an offensive one. So the key is you've got to force the play to the middle. And then, of course, the other issue is dealing with these runbacks uh, that have become almost routine for these top guys. So it is an issue, and how it's dealt with going forward, I'm sure will be lots of discussion and lots of controversy. What do you say to that, Kevin? Do, you, do we need more scoring, or are you happy with the game, or do we have to adjust it? Yeah, I think it's just a case of you need two to tangle, I think is what it is. And if you've got two aggressive-minded people, completely entertaining. If you you know get people to throw it in the house and hit it for the first while, you know, it, it's not so much. And I guess with the mixed doubles idea, which I love mixed doubles, by the way, having the stationary stones, there's no choice. You're forced to dance. <laughs> there's nothing yep. you can do about it. You've got to dance. And that's mm -hmm. really exciting for people. And I do love the idea of a tick zone. I think that's really, really important. And that way, if one person wants to dance, the other person has to dance. Right now, if somebody's very, very defensive minded, they don't have to dance. And so that's something that should probably be looked at in some form. But the runbacks are becoming very, very easy. And I'll tell you what, it was, I think it was Saskatchewan in the uh, semifinal against uh, Team Alberta, Team Botcher, when the lead threw the tight guard and Kark went around it, buried, and ran the guard back right on the nose, boom, boom, and all of a sudden it's a Saskatchewan guard and a Saskatchewan in the house dead buried. Yeah. Like it, it, was, it was eight feet long. And they, just for fun, made it straight back and, and left the other rock buried. So talent of the players is just phenomenal right now, which is great. I love it that our athletes are getting so good. And it's just a matter of continuing to, you know, evolve the game with the uh, 
with how good the athletes are. And, you know, uh, just watching hockey with the trapezoid. It's a terrific idea, not allowing uh, guys like Mike Smith, who's good with the puck, to go in the corner and get the get it. Well, the other night, he goes to uh, to grab the puck, and it jumps over his stick. He can't go in the trapezoid to get it. Guess what? He's stuck in the corner. Calgary scores on Edmonton. That was a great adjustment that was made because the goalies were getting too good at handling the puck. It's just the evolution of sport. There's no problem. It's not a negative. It's a positive. Our players are getting really good, so we adjust things a little bit. No problem. Yeah, there's no question to run backs. I went back and, and looked at some of the tapes just to uh, assure myself that what I was thinking was correct. And, and the accuracy that these top players have in those runbacks is, is unbelievable. It's almost just become almost routine. And so that's created a whole new set of issues from my point of view. Kevin, you and I were talking yesterday. You said when a team does break through and wins the big championship and wins the Briar, look out because there's a huge history of them whipping off multiple Briars after this. Talk about Botcher winning that thing and what you anticipate will happen with that team. Well, let's just look back a little bit in history with uh, recent history, some players. Uh, uh, Pale Lindholm, if you remember Pale Lindholm, he won a ton. But in uh, 1994, I'd like to say the 1994 Players' Championship, we played him in the semifinal. And a really nice guy. And Pea came up to me after the game. We beat him. He says, Kevin, we're not as good as you yet. Mm. And sure enough, just a few years later, in 1999 to 2002, he beat us five times in a row. And not many people did that. Like once he got a taste of winning, he won the Worlds in 1997. Oh, watch out. And he started to win everything. Nicodine in 2010 Olympics, not that good yet. Like he, he, he was good, but not But once he won, uh-oh, now watch. Brad Gushu. Brad Jacobs. There's so many examples of these terrific young athletes that are, you know, they're knocking on the door, but the door won't open. And just again and again and again. And then when they win, uh-oh, oh now you can't stop them. And I just think that in, in history, we see these brilliant teams and they knock on the door and they knock on the door and Botcher did. They knocked like crazy and finally the door opened last week and watch out. I think it's just going to be like so many athletes before Kevin Cooey, another great example, made it to his first Briar 2010 and he hasn't stopped since. He's just been unbelievable since. So there's just a history of this. And I think that uh, you get to watch uh, Botcher do the same. We're going to go to break right now, but when we come back, who better to hear from than the champions, the 2021 Briar winners, Brendan Botcher and Darren Mulder. Another knock at the door with arguably the two biggest guests in curling right now. Uh, we've got our champions, the reigning Briar champions, and what a Briar it was. Welcome the skipper and the third, Brendan Botcher and Darren Molding. How are you, Brendan? Ha, I'm great. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pretty cool feeling right now, that's for sure. Unbelievable. And Darren, you're there? Yeah, I'm here and I'm feeling, feeling pretty good. The sun's shining pretty bright this morning. I thought maybe maybe we better wait a day or two, you know, someone might be hammered or something. How'd you celebrate this thing, first of all, Brendan, after? Well, you know, there's not uh, not a whole lot we can do, uh, but we were able to celebrate a little bit and stay within all the rules. And, you know, I, I think that's important. We battled so hard for the last few years. You really got to savor that victory a little bit and enjoy the process. And how about you, Darren? How did you guys pull that off? I'll ask you first, Darren, that, that whole thing. I mean, it was... It was so exciting uh, the whole week. I loved it. I loved the format, the Friday, Saturday playdowns. And um, talk about that, Darren, for a minute, how you guys pulled off this whole thing. Well, I think it was just a matter of, of getting stronger as the week went on. And uh, we, we didn't really start out playing great. We kind of scraped out a few wins. But I think after we we won that game against BC, that was when we really turned on our A game. And... Uh, just got better and then the weekend obviously we were we were pretty much lights out on the weekend and I thought we played our very best over the weekend if there's not enough pressure already Brendan to win the briar when you get in there the stress of it like if that's not enough every time Brendan you stepped on the ice the announcers all the time let's not forget 
Brendan Botcher's been to the final three times, you know, is this a year? <laughs> you must have had enough of that, Brendan. How, how did you handle that extra thing on top? You know, uh, I think everyone was trying to make a bit bigger story of that than it felt to me. So in my head, you know, each one of those three years was a huge success for us for a variety of reasons. Yeah, we might have come up a little bit shy in the final, but there were a lot of positives that I can take out of that. So it wasn't as big of a deal for me as it might have been. Uh, it was a pretty good news story, I guess. That's why people kept talking <laughs> about it. But uh, on my side, it really wasn't that big of a negative. You know, I was coming in just trying to play my absolute best, our absolute best in the final this year. And and hopefully that stacked up good enough. I mean, that's all you can do. A lot of teams coming at you. And before we get to the boys, I know they want to jump in here for sure. The field is so strong all the time for the Briar when it gets down to the, you know, the end of the week, the cream rises to the top. And then Glenn Howard can't play. Wayne Madog comes in and everyone's sort of going, well, we'll see how they can do. Maybe not their year. That's bad luck. And then that whole Madog story rolls around a lot of you guys said you'd you'd watched him growing up it may have been a little before your time but that was certainly one of the stories what what, what was your take on that brendan well certainly pretty cool uh, i mean i think i figured out this week wayne madal won the briar the year i was born <laughs> um <laughs> And it's just always cool, you know, playing against the guys you watched growing up. I mean, Wayne is one of the absolute best. And I think anyone that uh, expected him to come in this week and be anything other than amazing was uh, selling him short. I expected nothing less from Wayne. And he's one of the fiercest competitors on the ice. So he was definitely going to bring his all. Well, hey, Darren, you actually got to play uh, one event with Wayne Madal, I think, a couple of years ago. He came and replaced uh, Brennan for a, a Grand Slam event, I think. So you would have had uh, firsthand knowledge of how well he can play. Wasn't that, uh, when was that, Darren? That was actually before I joined the team, but I actually played against Wayne a whole bunch when I was skipping in my early men's years. So... He, he beat me up pretty good a few times. <laughs> we actually played him in the final in Utica, New York. I thought I had a chance to win that game until I stepped on the ice and then I realized uh, I had a lot of work to do. But uh, it was pretty neat actually being able to beat him <laughs> for once <Yeah>. because <laughs> when I was in my 20s, he, he whooped me up pretty good. So it was neat to be out there. I remember one time when uh, you used to have to, the skip would always draw the button uh, when they started to, instead of flipping a coin, you draw the button. And I remember playing Wayne and, uh, and you just, if you covered the nail, there was no triangulation at that point. If you covered the button, you just did it again. And I remember we're in a bond spiel. And so he covers, covers again, covers again, covers again, covers again, <laughs> covers again, covers for the seventh time. I said, Wayne, You've got hammer. That's enough. Because I don't even know how many he would have done. We, I just shut it down. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't know how many. <laughs> he he might have went on for an hour. I don't know. But it was amazing. So, that yeah, that's how good Wayne Madaw is and was. At that point, you're just trying to protect your draw path for the rest <laughs> yeah. of the game. <laughs> oh, exactly. Hey, Brandon, I want to ask you one thing. So, uh, of course, uh, I had a bit of that, uh, the monkey on the back stuff going on. So, I can speak from uh, from a little bit of experience. So it's good of you to say that uh, it didn't bother you and all that stuff. And that's okay. You can say that to the media. We don't believe you. But um, <laughs> I, I just would like to get a feel for it. When your last one, when you hit and stay in the back eight foot, you're as good at math as anybody. There's nothing. Cooey's got nothing. I'd like to hear what went through your mind because you know you've got it in the bag. Is it mostly relief or joy? I would say a pretty even mix of both, if I'm being honest, Kevin. I'd like you to be honest. Not even because we lost three finals in a row, although that might have added a little bit to the to the moment. But I, <laughs> I remember curling for so long, dreaming about playing in a briar. That was what I was curling for when I was young. I was watching you and Randy battle it out every year. And then I was watching you and Kevin battle it out every year. And I was just dreaming about playing in a briar. And then that became reality. And then the dream became, the dream is winning a briar. And that's been my dream here for the last handful of years. And you're right. I mean, 
when we hit and stuck, I was 99.9% sure there was nothing Kevin could do. But if there was ever a curler that would throw a shot that may or may not be there and have a pretty good likelihood of making it, <laughs> it's uh, it's Kevin Cooey. So I was trying to, you know, stay calm for just a couple more seconds <laughs> until he realized uh, there just wasn't anything. Ask you guys a question going back to that semifinal game, which I think would have to be the, the most important shot of your entire week. Matt Dunstan went to throw his last rock in that end. Uh, he probably had a couple of options. You guys are sitting there and you're watching this and you're saying, well, if he does this, we'll do that. What were you hoping he would possibly try to do with that last shot? Uh, is that the shot that you kind of thought that was going to give you the best opportunity that he played? Or did you think he had other, other options? So about halfway through that end, Don Bartlett came out for a timeout. We called him out there. He gave us some feedback on a shot. And right before he was walking back to the bench, he said, that rock way up there, that one's going to be your friend at the end of this end. And uh, kind of had that in the back of my mind through the next few shots. You know, Matt played the shot that I think 19 out of 20 teams would have played. And I think they accepted in that moment that I was going to have that long angle run back. (laughs) And truth be told, I don't think anyone makes that more often than they miss it. So uh, you've got to leave that for for the other team at some point because you do risk playing another shot, making it easier. So by memory as well, when he plugged that hole, if that hole had remained open, you probably couldn't get more than one going that route, could you? I think you were pretty much going to have to take the one. Is that correct? No. Uh, so the rock that was shot, I could have thrown back line weight and tapped it out of the forefoot for two as well. Okay. So he did need to protect against that. He definitely took away the easier of the two shots. Took away the easier and left you what, as you say, it was a Hail Mary shot. And uh, boy, you made it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Brendan, also, would it be a possible, like we, we talked about it at the house here, but it might have been too much curl, and that's bringing that guard in close enough so that it took away both the outturn tap and the outturn angle raise. Would it be possible to get it there, or were the guards so long that there's just no way? It was a little bit tough. I'm sure you could have got it into a spot that took away both, but you'd really hate to throw enough weight to get it real tight or top 12 and then tick off one of the guards and and leave me a, a wide open tap for two. It, yeah, it's, it's just one of those hard situations. I mean, we really didn't play that good of an end of curling, but uh, when you have hammer, you've always got a shot. So just try and leave yourself the most makeable one at the end. I want to know about the strategy of the championship team uh, going through the week. Did you guys change it depending on which team you're playing? Do you say, okay, against these guys, we've got to have more rocks in play. With these guys, less. We've got to be more defensive with these guys. Uh, Walk us through that, Brendan. I don't play the opponent as much as a lot of other teams do. I really try and focus on what we do out there. We have a winning formula. If we execute our game plan and we play well, we win more often than we lose. So I I try to focus on that more than playing the opponent. I mean, there's always (laughs) some notes here, you know, leave, leave this fellow an intern hit if you can, leave this fellow an outturn draw if you could, but that's more last couple shots of the end. If you have, if you've got a choice, you may as well leave him the one he's more likely to miss. Darren, what about the skipper? Was he calm through the week? Did you like what he was going on? Uh, Starting right from the first opening weekend right till the end. How was your skipper all week? He's always a rock. Like, that's pretty much a given. Early in the week, I I thought not just Brendan, but we were all a little bit rusty. We were throwing it well, but we just hadn't played in a lot of games. And that feeling of being out there and, and, uh, you know, making shots to win games and making important shots in ends to flip ends around. I think we were feeling that a little bit the first few games. Once we Mm -hmm. settled down a bit and got comfortable, I mean, I could tell probably starting against BC that Skipper was starting to get that look in his eye. And when he gets like that, I pretty much just try and stay out of the way and just help him out a little bit here and there. Mm -hmm. For me, and I find it it helps everyone on the team if I can stay a little bit calm. And that's... uh, (laughs) Not always easy for me, but I've gotten better <laughs> at it. I've gotten better at it over the last few years, and 
I try and have a nice balance of energy and passion, but staying calm to help Brendan out so that he's not the only one that's calm on the sheet. Well, other than Kark, Kark's pretty calm too. But Brad and I, you know, we're, we're a little more fiery outwardly. The balance is really nice. And, uh, but yeah, Skipper had that look in his eye, especially the last weekend. And when he gets like that, I honestly, I feel like there's really no one that can keep up with him because he has all the, shots and he's got the best balance of any skip in the game in terms of being able to throw any shot any turn any spot there's really not a weakness there when he gets like that you just gotta let you just gotta let him roll and you gotta support him and that's what i do so let's talk about the bc game for a minute you guys went through a real different experience there in that situation with uh, with the steve laycock issue with the ice uh, something I don't think I'd ever seen before. The last time I remember a delay in the briar, I think, was back in 1999 when the power went out. How did that impact with you guys, and how did you handle all that? That was an interesting experience for sure. I certainly haven't experienced anything like that. I'm not trying to drag on Steve at all. I mean, he got caught up a little bit in the moment and did something he <laughs> probably shouldn't have. And unfortunately, it was just in the perfectly wrong spot and we really had to stop and and repair and make sure it was a good sheet moving forward for all of us but (laughs) in that moment you just got to try and stay calm not get worked up i mean certainly for me uh getting confrontational is not gonna help me play my best for the rest of the game so you kind of got to let the situation play out and i was fortunate enough that darren uh stick handled most of the issue as it was going on so i could kind of sit back and just let it all play out because that game was huge most people forget but if you don't win that game you're in a whole different situation so that was a, a major issue for you guys we still weren't even in the championship pool because like if new brunswick beats northwest territories we're in a tiebreaker if we lose that game it was a really important game I mean, for me, what I wanted to do there, like, I'm an ice maker, so Greg was trying to eat a steak somewhere, and uh, he wasn't around, so the crew was trying their best, and I was trying to, like, help them, and uh, it was a pretty big hole, and but I, it wasn't like I could just grab the pebble can and start doing the sheet <laughs> that we're laying on. I wanted to, and... Uh, for me, I just wanted my teammates to sit there and just don't worry about it and let me deal with it. And uh, it was 45 minutes of hard work for me to try and get everything done. And then, you know, they were classy, but I still, like, they wanted to play right away. And I, I was like, no, we're like we're not playing on this. We can't. And I just told them, like, I don't want to drag this out, but we have to because the sheet's unplayable and it's we're the non offending team and I want the sheet to be playable. One of the tricks when you're trying to fill a hole is you fill it with water and then you put a paper plate upside down over the hole. Oh. It makes it freeze quicker. I know this from experience. So I was asking <laughs> them if they I'm like, you've got to have some plates somewhere, like don't you? And they unfortunately they didn't. So that was an issue. And then once Greg got there, like Greg was able to fix it pretty quick. But I tried to take some stress off the guys. And when we were done, like after 45 minutes of that, I can honestly tell you, I felt like going to bed. I was totally tired and out of energy. And when we started up again, Brendan was the one who took over and and actually got me fired up again. Until Brendan just looked at me and he said, we're not losing tonight. Like We're not. But it was a really unique situation. Steve, Steve, I've, I go way back with Steve. I, I lost the junior Canadian final to him in 03. He felt awful. He did. And if he could take it back, he would at least walk over to the carpet and give it a whack there. <laughs> I mean, you got to know if you're going to slam your broom, at least go to the side of the sheet. But uh, we were all just trying to manage the situation the best we could, including Team BC, including Steve. I mean, I felt bad for him in a way because I've never done that, but I've lost my temper a few times and broke brooms or done things that aren't great. And you you do, you feel embarrassed and you wish you could take it back, but you can't. So I just uh, told Steve, it's okay. Deep down, like, yeah, I was a little angry. I mean, I think all of us were a little bit. It happened and we dealt with it. And I actually think in the end, 
it probably helped us because it was one of our better wins we've ever had as a team, I think. I'd just like to comment on that. You know, curling's one of the few sports where there really aren't penalties in the rules. I mean, in any other sport, that would be a a foul of sorts, Mm -hmm. a penalty of sorts, and there would be a punishment for that. And in curling, sure, we can find the guy after the event's done, but how does that help the team that was fouled against? And I really think that's a huge gap in our sport. The fact that there isn't some kind of tangible cause and effect for, you know, blatantly breaking the rules. Yeah, it's one of the issues. It's not like golf where you can all of a sudden, if you ground the club in the sand trap, as example, you're going to lose two strokes. Uh, we don't have anything defined in that nature with curling. And it's always been the issue. It's sort of the mix between the top competitive player and the average club player. There isn't a, a big bridge there. And uh, it's interesting as to going into the future, how this might be dealt with uh, or having some way of dealing with it. I mean, for me, a way to do it would be the player gets ejected from the game. And then, wow. but I mean, not to rail on Steve, but I just think that you, you eject the player from the game. And then uh, if their fifth wants to come in, he has to come in in place of the ejected player. And that would have been at least a punishment. But for us, really, uh, you know, and I'm not going to skirt around this, it costs us a deuce. Absolutely. The game was, we were starting to take that game over. Anyone who was watching that game, we were starting to really pour it on, which is why I think Steve was getting frustrated because he knew that the tables were turning and we were starting to get after them. And after that, we had to throw two precision draws on ice that hadn't been played on in an hour, and they got to throw two hits. And we couldn't put our draws in the right place because the ice was 10 feet different in weight. And I mean, it's just a fact. I mean, again, I'm not railing on Steve, but that costs us a deuce. And uh, we ended up battling all game back because of that, because Jimmy Cotter wouldn't miss a shot. Brendan, talk about playing with COVID protocols uh, to do this. Curling Canada deserves huge credit for, there were no incidents. I don't know if you've heard anything now. How did you guys handle it between draws? Yeah, I'd just like to start uh, huge hats off to Curling Canada. I mean, now we're we're two events through this thing, despite the many, many COVID tests that <laughs> happened down here, there's yet to be a positive. So that's really a, a statement of, you know, how strict the protocols are. And then also a huge props to all the athletes for really following through on their end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. It was tough, a little maybe easier for me personally. Uh, I can work full time. So when I'm uh, when I'm not at the rink, I'm, I'm back at my laptop working. Um, and that was a, a pretty good way for me to kill a whole bunch of hours. I think everyone uh, had a little bit different way of dealing with that. But I think our team, uh, maybe more so than most, we're busy in our day-to-day lives. So curling is not the only thing that we do. And that gives us a little bit of perspective. And in this instance, it gave us a little bit of uh, something to do while we were sitting alone in our hotel rooms. You worked between draws at the Briar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Were you doing it all right away after each draw, right till the till bedtime and then up again the next day doing more work? You know, I have, I have a ton of support from Spartan Controls there behind me 100%. In the past, I've used... Uh, I've used vacation days to take the briar off. This year I made a decision that working was actually going to be a bit of a a benefit to me Mm -hmm. just so I wasn't sitting alone in my room kind of stewing. So I was selective. I took half days off where I needed them. So I wasn't, you know, stressed while we were on the ice. But uh, other than that, I worked and I enjoyed it. It uh, passed a lot of time for me. Even, you know, we won the Briar Sunday evening, go through all that emotion, have time to celebrate with the guys. At 7.30 on Monday morning, I logged back into my work computer. So uh, it it all comes around full circle pretty quick. So let's look forward now. You're going into a world championship and a very unique situation. I can't remember in history where you're going back into the same building on the same ice, but with different rocks now than you just played the Briar on. What do you think about that whole situation? And who do you look at the world level as being your toughest opponents? 
So it'll definitely be an interesting situation. I agree with you, Warren. I certainly hope the conditions are similar, not because I think that's an advantage, but just as a testament to how good they really were at the Briar. I I don't think Greg and the guys get nearly enough credit for producing those kind of conditions week in and week out. And and I hope we get very similar to that, even with the the world curling stones that they're going to bring in. I think it's a small advantage maybe to us, just comfort level. Uh, not only of the venue itself, but just of the all the protocols here at the hotel and all the hoops we have to jump through relative to the COVID restrictions. But it'll be unique. <laughs> I think there's lots of world teams that that get up and play their absolute best against Team Canada. So we're going to have to be on our A game for sure. Uh, certainly Nick Edin out of Sweden and Peter de Cruz out of Switzerland. And there's lots of European teams, Bruce Mowat as well from Scotland. You know, those guys uh, would, would love to knock Canada down a couple pegs. So we're, we're going to have to be our best. I, I hope we can stay down here and uh, keep practicing in the bubble <laughs> even uh, after, after the mixed doubles wraps up so that uh, we can just keep curling and keep feeling comfortable and hopefully we can go into that world championship on an upswing. Yeah, I want to get a little bit technical. Um, I want to talk about your front end a little bit. And it just seems to me, and Darren and I had a good chat um, after you guys won, but a lot of teams um, tend to have uh, one one big monster and then a guy that's kind of normal. Uh, you seem to have kind of two monsters on the front end. <laughs> and it seems to me that you guys have an advantage of being able to play both turns with the same amount of uh, ability, I guess, from the sweeping perspective of holding it straight, carrying the rock, all these other things. Whereas a lot of teams, if they need a big shot, they'll go to one turn or the other, depending on which side the monster's on. Am I anywhere near right on this? Cause oh, it no, seems, you're, uh... it's fairly technical, but if you can get into that, I'd sure appreciate it. I think you're a hundred percent correct, Kevin. Um, and I think a lot of the top teams, um, depending on which turn they play, their monster, to use your words, <laughs> switches sides, <laughs> which which is fine on a shot-by-shot level. But uh, if you're playing 13 games at a Briar followed by 15 games at a World Championship, at some point, you know, your monster's human too. <laughs> and uh, you end up using a, a lot of capacity out of them, right? And I think one of the huge advantages our team has is that we don't have to play that game. We can spread it out equally. We've got a third monster in Pat Jansen who's sitting on the bench that's as equally as good sweeper as the two guys we've got out on the ice. So I do think that's an advantage, even if it's just a, a bit of a psychological advantage over some of the other teams. If you've been living in a cave, by the way, as I jump in here, one of those monsters is Kevin's son. Okay, Carter. <laughs> Carter. So, <laughs> I think one of the things that gets overlooked too, you, your, your broom head works better the less you've used it Hmm. so later in the game if you've used your monster every shot that broom head is worn down and when we can use both sweepers equally and that's why i insist on sweeping as much as possible too because why not put some of the strain on my broom head if we can keep both those broom heads fairly fresh then we have more effectiveness from our sweepers late in the game what a great point, Darren. When it comes to the, the brush heads wearing down, I never, I've never thought about this. This is complete yeah. news. Is it a line that is really affected by, say, you know, Brad, say, sweeping more than Karak or vice versa, and, and his broom is used up more? Is it a, an inability to hold that line, or is it carrying the rock for distance is the most affected? This is great. I think it's mostly um, line, but it's also distance, too. But mostly line. When your broom head's sharper, you can do way more with the line. And so in practice, like you'll notice like Brad and Kark barely sweep. Me and Paddle sweep everything. Because I, why, why ruin their broom heads for practice? So we'll clean the path. We'll sweep everything to save their broom heads. And then that's another reason that I like Brad throwing the LSD instead of me. Because he can hit the pin just as often as I can. But now I'm sweeping and burning my broom head instead of his. And your energy. And energy. That's a a huge factor. So at the end there, in the 10th end against Cooey, when Brad hammered that hack waiter all the way and we got by by half an inch, I truly believe if we wear his broom head out, 
all game, we rock that guard. That's the difference between winning and losing. Brad and I have tested different broomheads with various uses. A worn-out broomhead can still do pretty good for distance, but not so good for uh, line. Interesting stuff. (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah, great. Thank you, guys. This is like the old days with corn brooms. You used to have them broken in about three different uh, levels. So, I mean, when you got down to the end of the game, you always pulled out the broom that was going to be working the best. It was the whippiest and kind of the same approach. So, interesting stuff. You guys are both playing in mixed doubles starting here a couple of days. Is this a new venture for you? Have you played mixed doubles a lot? What's your uh, furry into this going to result in? From my perspective, uh, I've played quite a bit of mixed doubles. I actually really enjoy it. So, you know, it teaches me a lot of things, you know, being a skip that I don't have uh, much exposure to. So certainly the sweeping side is one aspect, but the communication and the judgment skills and all of those soft skills that the front end picks up over time are skills that I did not have. Not that they're not important. I just never really had a chance to get them. (laughs) And I think mixed doubles is a huge outlet for me to do that. So I've played quite a bit over the past few years. I really enjoy it. Uh, I'm playing with my fiance for those that don't know. And and we have an absolute blast doing it together. So it's a lot of fun for me. How it's possible that you could play something like that with your fiance and you don't fight like Sean and I there there'd be absolutely no chance we could do that we'd be we, we, well it'd be the end of everything so that's amazing that you guys can play at a high level of something and then get off the field of play and just carry on that's amazing to me and yell at each other <laughs> yeah wow so I I'd be lying if I said it wasn't uh, challenging at times Kevin um, but you know we have a ton of respect for each other and we we're both doing this because we love doing it, but we love doing it together. And we, we come back to that when there's uh, some abrasive moments and, you know, why are we actually out here doing this? And it's, it's truly because we want to do it together. And you, you got to focus on that <laughs> outside of the couple moments on the ice that can be a little tense. No, oh, that's great. Darren, you're playing with Joanne Courtney. Have you played together before in this? Uh, tell us about your venture here into mixed doubles yeah so uh i played a few events of mixed doubles not a ton i've made a lot of ice for mixed doubles so i've watched a ton of it but i've played a ton of one-on-one in my life a ton like i bet you more than anyone so i've always thrown the rock got up and swept it been really good at that you know when i got into the continental cup and played mixed doubles i think they sacrificed me actually they put me up against uh, Alina and Sven, the best team in the world, a guy that never plays mixed doubles. And we almost beat them. So Joanne, I don't know, she said that she uh, saw that and was looking for a mixed doubles partner that lived close to her where we could practice lots together. So she asked me to play, and Joanne's one of the world's best mixed doubles players, so I had to say yes. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really excited. And, I mean, I don't know how we're going to do. I don't have a lot of experience, but like you say, with, with my one-on-one experience and the bit of mixed doubles experience I do have, I feel like we're going to be highly competitive. What if you end up facing the boss? You got to let him win, uh, Darren. You got He's the skipper, man. I've faced the boss a couple times playing mixed doubles. <laughs> <laughs> we don't hold back. We go right after each other. <laughs> I would expect nothing less, nothing less, 110%. <laughs> We want to talk about the rocks. There was a controversial moment there at the Briar near the end of the week. Before we do that, Brendan, you know, everyone's aware of the page system that's been played in curling and then this format, which is relatively new. When I asked this question, okay, what, what do the champions think of the format? I mean, you're, you know, the answer is like, we're okay with it. We won the thing. But what's your comment on it, Brendan? You've played in both formats, obviously. You're right. I mean, it's pretty easy when you win to say, you know, you love everything, but I'll give you a little bit more nuanced answer. I really like the format because I think it does a few things. Uh, It allows for the provincial territorial representation, which is very important for some of the stakeholders. And it allows for a lot of the top teams to be present, which is huge from a a high-end level you know we're selecting a team to go to a world championship this has to have a certain degree of the top teams need to be there Mm -hmm. so i think it struck a pretty good balance um i hope curling canada is open to 
to adjusting to this format moving forward. I'm not sure if this was strictly a COVID result or if they were trying to trial something a little bit. Kevin, we want to talk about the controversy about the rocks. So I'll let you ask the boys about that. Yeah, the Sanding of the Stones mid-event, and this is, of course, right in Darren's wheelhouse, being a top ice maker. Anytime you've got a nine-day event, well, actually more than that because of practice and everything else, you're probably at 10 or 11 days, 10 end games. I guess it's a decision of, do we have to sand the stones mid-event? Probably, and we'll hear from Darren on that. But the when, but the when do you do it? And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Well, both Darren and Brendan, but Darren first. Your thoughts on, I guess, why we sand the rocks before a major event, because this is great, right up your alley, and then to do it a second time, when would be the best time? Well, there's a couple things you can do. Uh, first of all, if you're going to sand with 80 grit paper, which is what Greg was using. Okay, what does that mean, Darren? 80 grit versus 120, say? There's three, really three grits that you would sand rocks with, 100, 80, and 60. 100 would be more of a, a soft, gentle curl at the club level. 80 would be when you do 80 at the beginning, there's a lot of curl, but it fades quickly. And then when you hit it with 60 at the beginning, the curl is pretty much unmanageable, but it lasts longer. So if you were to hit the rocks with 60 grit pre-event, your first couple days, you'd have seven, eight feet of curl. <laughs> okay. But by the end of the event, it would be perfect. If you send them with 80 grit, you have beautiful ice for four or five days, and then it starts to get straight. Now, the way to have the ice be really nice for the whole time is to use 80 grit because you don't have that beginning part where it's really crazy and unmanageable. So that's why they use 80 grit, and then it's beautiful. And some surfaces, it might last a little longer, but in the dry weather here in Calgary, with the big pebble they have to throw down, they just can't throw a small enough pebble down to get curl once the rocks start to smooth out. So you've got to paper them again during the event. And that that's where you go to the when. Now, I personally liked the timing. I thought, yeah, he maybe could have done it a day earlier. But if you do that, if you noticed in our final, the ice started actually getting a little straighter again. If he would have done them a day earlier, it would have got fairly straight by the final. I think he was trying to make sure that the ice was really, really good for the last day. Now, the morning that he did the rocks, it wasn't like he hammered them three times with fresh paper. Like, they weren't that crazy, I didn't think. It was like five and a half feet of curl for us, which in Lacombe, like, I usually have more than that for us. So for us, it was really easy to adjust to. And I thought Greg did an awesome job. I thought his timing was perfect on it. Some other people didn't think the same thing. As Brendan said in his interview, all you had to do was throw one rock and you knew what happened. <laughs> so, you know, the ice changed significantly from Friday night to Saturday morning, but it was back to basically how it was early in the week. So I thought that the adjustment was fairly easy to make. You know, you'd like as an ice maker to be able to do it and hide it a little bit more. Like I've done it mid-event where I've done it and curlers haven't even noticed because I make my pebble bigger and I smooth out the rocks a little bit by dragging them. And the other advantage I have as an ice maker is I can do one rock, throw my gear on and throw the rock and, be, and know like, well, it's curling a foot more, six inches more. So that's an advantage there. But you know, maybe Greg, you know, if you asked him and he was honest, he might say that, yeah, maybe I like got him a little too sharp, but I thought he did a great job. I thought the ice was beautiful for the last weekend. Absolutely phenomenal. Some of the best stuff we've ever played on. So that's, that's good. And, and Greg's a fantastic ice maker. I certainly agree with you there. I guess from a player standpoint, shouldn't it be in the player's guide? Like, like this shouldn't be something that surprises anybody. Everybody knows it's a nine-day event. They're going to have to re-sand the stones somewhere in the middle, someplace. But I can't imagine how that can be done without players absolutely knowing exactly when so that you show up to the rink completely knowledgeable in a Canadian championship, Brennan. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Kevin. I think it would be pretty easy to pick a date. So in, in the current format, you could say after the first pool play before the championship pool, that's our opportunity to scratch the rocks. 
we're getting emails constantly from Curling Canada every day while we're at this event. I mean, you could give teams a 24-hour notice that the rocks will be scratched. <laughs> um, the other thing I would comment, though, is that uh, the vast, vast majority of the players out there were happy the rocks were scratched. It was only a very, very small minority of the players that got upset about it. And I think that got lost in this discussion a little bit because based on what you were hearing in the news, you would have assumed that the players were just together in unison outraged against what happened. And that's not at all the case. I, I said it in my post-game interview, you throw one rock and you know, all of a sudden <laughs> the miss that was on one side of the fairway before is now on the other side of the fairway. <laughs> and you, you throw one rock, you realize that and you move on. I mean, we're all claiming to be the best curler in Canada. You're telling me you can't deal with that? a boy, Brendan. We interviewed Don Bartlett on our previous show. And, uh, you know, Donnie's sort of a quiet guy. You know, he, can, he's, he sort of slips under the radar. But, but at the end of the interview, he got very emotional. In fact, he was brought to tears talking about, you know, curling and, and his life as curling and his experience with Kevin and, uh, and what Warren has done for the game. We saw him there as your coach. Talk about uh, Don Bartlett for a second, Brendan. <laughs> I, I truly can't say enough good things about Don. I, I can't. He's one of the kindest, most genuine humans I think I've ever met. He truly means so well. And for us as a team, he not only knows what to say, because he's been there. He's experienced winning the biggest games. He's experienced losing the biggest games. So he, he knows what to say, and he's quite smart. But he gets how to say it and when to say it and who needs to hear it. And when there's times you need to give some people some space, when there's times you need to intervene or even push a little bit, he knows how to do that. And I think he does it in a super kind and respectful way when he does. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us take note because he's a guy that you can have a ton of laughs with on and off the ice. And then five seconds later, he'll be telling you something pretty blunt that you should be listening to. He demands a lot of respect when he does that. Kind of the gentle giant is what I was calling him by the end of the week. Speaking of Don Bartlett and the rest of you guys, uh, congratulations again. What, what a, you know, it's obviously the biggest victory of your life, Brendan, and the rest of your team. Right after you guys won, when you're sort of sitting around and Cooey's saying, because they were running out of time and Cooey's saying, okay, find something, boys, find something. And they couldn't and they turned <laughs> and they go, your game, boys. Okay, it's not your game. It's your, your tournament, your championship. All you guys gathered at the ice. We could see you saying something. What were all the comments with you guys that moment that you embraced each other, realizing you had won the briar? Uh, to be honest, I'm, uh, I'm not 100% sure what we said. I'm not sure if it was uh, uh, much more than nonsense in that moment. Uh, we were just all ecstatic. I mean, we work hard. And like we talked about a little earlier, I mean, we lost that game three times. We know what that feels like. Mm -hmm. And I think you just saw that flood of emotion and just the pure happiness and relief that came from that moment. That's a feeling I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to forget. What was going through your mind, Darren, after that two seconds right after you realized they, they were going to hand you the trophy? Well, I swear when Brendan knows that rock, I almost went checkmate. I almost did. <laughs> I... And then I said, don't, that's stupid. And uh, I, uh, then I went to the guys and I'm like, we just won the Briar guys. There's no shot. And anyone who knows that's my style. Like when I see something, I'll just say what I think. Brendan's like, hold on, hold on. And I'm like, no, he's dead. It's done. We won. Like, and, and then when they finally put their hands out, it was like, I weighed half the amount that I weighed before. Right. Like I just felt all that pressure go. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think I don't remember what we said either other than like we did it. We, I don't know, but it'd be hard pressed to find a team that's gone through more together. I mean, mm -hmm. we've been through so many tough losses and great wins and we work so hard, like all the training camps we have that, I mean, Kevin taught us how to train and, uh, and just, it was just like, I always said, I need to win a briar with these guys. It can't be with anyone else. It has to be with these guys. And uh, 
I'm just so happy we, we could do it together. And I think all of us, when we looked at each other, you, you wanted to win it as much for the guy you're looking at than as yourself. And, and that's what that was. Now, one of you guys, you both can't do it, but one of you guys has a chance for the, the hat trick here. The Briar, the Mixed, and then the World. Let's keep it up, boys. All right, let's keep it up. Congratulations <laughs> again. Well done, you guys. Enjoy it as much as you can. Way to go. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, what a fantastic interview, you guys, getting Brendan on. Uh, huge day for them, of course, and a huge week. And Darren's got lots to say. Kev, what do you take away from that interview? You're right. Darren is, uh, you know what? Like, to me, Darren has so much to do with this team winning because of his energy, his incredible energy. Brendan Botcher is a cerebral, very smart, boring guy. My son is a great, <laughs> great person, but... He's a boring fella, and Brad, too. These are really intelligent guys, but they need that electricity, and that's what Darren brings to that team. You've got great curlers, but they need that energy, and that's what Darren brings, and that's why they're so good, I think. Outstanding stuff, in particular, all the comments from Darren is being an ice maker, and I think that really helps that team as well. He's got a knowledge of everything that's happening with ice and rocks that most teams haven't got uh, as part of them, and I was really uh, impressed with his comments about how they deal with the brush heads. So, yeah, he's a great asset to that team, and uh, they're great champions. Uh, Kev, curling's not finished. Yeah, isn't it something? No, it's not finished. We've got, the, uh, of course, the Canadian mixed doubles uh, next week that uh, both Brendan and, and Darren will be part of. And uh, then the World Men's, and that ends on the uh, 10th or 11th day of April. And then, of course, two Grand Slam events starting uh, the Humpties Champions Cup from the 14th to the 18th of April. The Princess Auto Players Championship wraps up on the 25th day of April, and then the women's worlds moves in, and they're not done until May 9th. So there is a ton of curling yet in the bubble. Hey, Warren, uh, everyone's probably stopped sending you emails, have they? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it did slow down a bit for a while, but the last few days has picked up again. Yeah, we've got a very, very lively Facebook and a face group. And instead of reading novels at night, Warren, I start to whip through uh, all the comments on Facebook. And of course, we're at we're Facebook at Inside Curling. Get us on Twitter at Curling Inside. We're on Instagram, Inside Curling Podcast. And you can email us, insidecurling at gmail.com. Uh, we want to thank you all for sending that stuff. We use a lot of it for the show. And, of course, Rod Paulson, who's been handling our social media stuff with content. It's great. It's lively. And uh, Rod has a company called In-House Strategies. And if you think you need that service, Rod's the guy. So, well, that's got to be a smash hit. Having on the winning skipper in third, uh, what a great show uh, that we had this week. And, of course, we'll be back. There's much more going on, of course, the mixed and the worlds and all sorts of stuff. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Curl. Kevin, Warren, no thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. No, we mean live. He means live doing it, doing it for the recording.